0: I think, you know, providentially, we're in a place here in Southeast Michigan where we find ourselves uh, with just, you know, one of the largest, if not the largest, Arab Muslim population outside the Middle East. I mean, we have there are three kind of centers in the United States: Chicago, Los Angeles, and Detroit. And I think uh, numbers-wise, uh, Los Angeles may be a little bit bigger, but the concentration here in Southeast Michigan is actually larger. So we actually have this. Uh, large Arab Muslim population. Uh, of course, so that's one reason. We just providentially, as we're here at CBC, we live in this region, we find ourselves in a place where we just have uh, co-workers, uh, students that are of ours, people we go to school with, people we work with, our neighbors, uh, Arab Muslims. Um, so it's just a great opportunity to learn a little bit more. Uh, secondly, you know, living in a post-9-11 world, Islam, the Middle East are constantly in the news. So whether you're you know, almost if you turn on any uh, I have to probably say just go to any website instead of saying turn on TV now. But If you go anywhere, read any news, you're going to see something about the Middle East going on. You know, Saudi Arabia, we you know, talking about Afghanistan, we've been there for 16 years, Iraq, all these places continually in the news. Um, you know, whether it's uh, terrorist attacks in europe and france these places islam is, is constantly something that we're hearing about. so again you know we find ourselves in a place where there's, there's islam is, is present we live in a world right now where it's just a topic that we continue to hear about so it's good to uh, arm ourselves to think about this topic intelligently and then uh, hopefully with an eye towards evangelism. So we're not just looking to get some kind of head knowledge. Hopefully, you know, we're we're trying to prepare ourselves for conversations that we can have uh, or build on relationships that we already have. Maybe you guys, you know, some of you may already have uh, Arab Muslim friends, or I shouldn't keep saying Arab Muslim, but here in this area it's mostly Arab Muslim. But maybe you have Muslim friends already or Muslim co-workers that you already deal with, and so it's good to build on that. Uh, relationship in order to start to uh, look to share God, uh, the gospel. Um, so, that is a little bit, just a brief introduction. We'll go ahead and look at the syllabus and see what we're looking to do with the class. So, our course description, I'll read that. Our, this course is designed to familiarize the student with the basic beliefs and tenets of Islam. So, we're going to look at Islam as a large religion, so um, the overall religion. So, there's, you know, Islam is made up of uh, the two major sects, S-E-T-T-S, S-E-C-T-S, sects uh, of Shia and Sunni, but there's a third sect, uh, which we probably won't have a lot of time to get into, is the Sufi, uh, Sufi brotherhoods. Um, so those, you know, we're going to be kind of looking at Islam over overall, not focusing too much on one or the other. Um, again, and that's where we find ourselves. So if you've ever been in Dearborn, uh, if you ever interact, for instance, with the Lebanese uh, group of uh, any Lebanese people here in uh, the Dearborn area, they tend to be from a Shia background. So they're uh, the, the minor, minor minority in Islam is this Shia, and that's where a lot of the Lebanese are from. If you interact with someone from Yemen, they're a Sunni background. So it's good to have an understanding of both. What are the similarities? What are the differences? And so we'll be looking at some of that. Particular focus we place on the historical social and political context of the religion as it developed into a coherent worldview. So especially in this beginning, these first couple of sessions, that really what we're going to look at the historical. So a range of topics will be considered, uh, that prehistory, otherwise known as jahriyya, which is what we'll be looking at today, hopefully we can get into a good amount, uh, Islamic faith and practice, what does Islam look like, what does it take to shape, how, does, how do we, uh, Muslims worship, uh, that kind of thing. What are the basics of their belief? Women in Islam. So this is a big one. Uh, you know how are how do women uh, uh, live out their lives as Muslim, you know, as Muslims. How do how are they viewed in the religion? That kind of thing. Islam in the West. A major goal. So those are just some of the topics. A major goal for the course will be equipping the student with a working knowledge of Islam as it would be understood by a Muslim. And so that's, I put that in my task because really that's what we want to understand. You know, I think if you go to YouTube and you, you look at anything or you read some Christian books, uh, you can get a, a, an understanding of Islam from a Christian perspective. And there's nothing wrong with that. But, you know, if, you interact with, if you're interacting with Muslims, or uh, sometimes it's good to understand how they think about their own religion. Uh, and especially as you look to build relationships, build conversations, build friendships, what do they think about it? You know, and so if you, why would that be helpful? Well, you know, if you, sometimes you go to a website, you see a video and it'll talk something about uh, Muhammad, and it'll say something maybe inflammatory or something, you know, and it whether it's true or not, you know, you don't want to open with something that's going to shut down the conversation right away. So if I say, you know, Mohammed didn't Muhammad marry, like, a 13-year-old girl, and what was that all about? You know, so saying these kind of things is it going to shut the conversation down right away before I even have an opportunity to start uh, talking with that person. So we want to understand Islam from a Muslim perspective. So, course objective, that primary goal of the course uh, is to inform the student about Islam in such a way that a meaningful an informed conversation with a Muslim would be, impossible, would be possible. So I, I list a couple texts there. As you see, none of those are required. Um, the first two, Muslims the Religious Beliefs and Practices, Andrew Rickman, That's that's one of the best uh, books that you can buy. It's about three hundred, little over three hundred pages. Uh, I've used it. I used it as a student. and I've also used it as a uh, with, as a teacher. Uh, it's a really good book. It gives you an in depth in depth understanding. Um, that second book, Islam, by John Kultner, Uh that's a, that's a really good one. That's probably a 140 pages. Uh, it's a really quick read, something give you just some basics. That's another good one. And then How to Read that Quran, that's, that's just there. Um, it's a, that's probably, you know, that's at college level, pretty high level, 400 pages probably. I'll bring a copy of that in when we actually start the topic on the Quran. But that's just if you if you have a desire to get to understand the Quran, maybe more that'd be a good one because it gives you uh, a narrative, a framework to understand how is the Quran laid out. What is what is the historical context to these chapters, these surahs as we read them? Okay. So, any questions on anything so far? Any questions? Again, the text. None of them are required just for your own, if you, if you want to explore further.
1: them. I mean, the margin lies and I was working, know, it. I literally went home, showered, and came here.
0: Yeah, thank you for showering.
1: <laughs> <So>. <laughs> I smelled pretty bad. 12 hours, it was a good 12 hours. I'm
0: day. glad you came in late. Yeah. I was just wondering,
1: and will you touch on at all and how they feed their children and... And bringing them
0: up into the Absolutely. So start. in that topic of Islam and women we'll be touching on family. Okay. family. I just so. deal with a lot of the children we yeah. just
1: want
0: to lose yeah. that is the and name. great question. So why would we cover why is that covered? Because of how or how how that fits into the topic with Islam and women is because typically in a normal Islamic um, you know household the, the child uh, rearing Process is just completely on the women. So, typically, from until you know, late teenage years, uh, the woman is, is the head of the household. So, you know, in uh, Arab and Muslim uh, households, they it's a patriarchal culture, which is you know, male dominated. But in the home, uh, which is one of the unique facets of Islamic culture, the, the the mother, the oldest woman in the house, typically actually has more uh, clout or influence in the family than than even the man. So uh, children and that kind of thing will fit nicely into that topic And so that brings up another point. Uh, As you see the course outline, what we're looking to cover, uh, the different topics I'm hoping to hit. Uh, This is a tentative outline. So as I go through this, if there's... um, It may end up being something we drop one of these topics out because there's interest in the class to to go another direction with something. Or we want to stop and explore another top you know one of the topics a little bit deeper um, so uh, these are the you know a tentative uh, outlines of where we'd like to go uh, but again I, I really want it to be as much interactive and as much uh, class led as far as where we go how we take it as possible so if there's questions if there's something in particular because again it's it's equipping you guys uh, so that you can actually take this knowledge and actually use it it's not just head knowledge and so, really, if there's something that's driving you, the reason maybe why you took the class, you know, I have a neighbor, I have, I, you know, in my job I deal with children, and I'd like to learn a little bit more, we can stop on a topic, park on it, and just really get in depth as, as much as possible. Uh, you know, and we can take it as, as deep as we as you guys want, uh, or we can just back it off so that it doesn't end up being too much like a college,
1: a college class for people to sleep. So... Um, yeah, so. going to touch on like, Islam, like in the Middle East, or like Islam in Dearborn. Uh, I know a lot of Muslims in so, Dearborn. Yeah, great in question. Guys. So,
0: really, a lot of this, the, a lot of the main stuff, is just going to be general. So, how it's practiced in the Middle East, how it's practiced here, it's all.
1: I'm talking yeah. about how like the dudes that shoot people practice.
0: Yeah. So, if you They're did you get? Uh, up, so yeah. So in the if you look at our course outline. Week eight uh, is where we would hopefully hit uh, that idea of jihad and fundamentalism. Okay. So that's where you know it's where we'll spend a, a class, kind of looking at what are the roots of this uh, fundamentalist uh, Islam, where does it come from, how does it you know why does it take its shape, why does it uh, manifest itself in the way it does, and why now? Because if Islam has been around since the sixth, late sixth, early seventh century, and you know for uh, a long time there's been this somehow this coexistence that hasn't really been as violent. Uh, but what happens in the late '70s and, and moving onwards uh, that that begins to create a, um, this conflict with the West, with between Islam and the West. What what is it? You know what what are the roots that kind of thing. Uh, so we'll get into that as much as we, as much as we have time. For. Uh, any other questions on class content? Where we're taking the class? Again, I apologize. I, it's definitely warm, so I, I uh, apologize about that. But we'll, we'll have to, we just have some warm weather today, and hopefully it'll cool off a little bit. Uh, and that air conditioner will hopefully help take the edge off, although well, it doesn't feel like it. Um, so, you guys, everybody should have a note, the one-page notes, and so that'll be where we will jump right into it now. So let me give a little bit before we jump right into this. So why, again, thinking about why we would study Islam, why do we want to take that approach? Why have I decided, I guess since I'm leaving class I should explain why I decided to take the approach I have with this course in helping us understand Islam from a Muslim perspective. Um, Let me go ahead and read a section from the book of Acts. So Acts 17, 19-33. So then they took him, this is Paul, and they took him and brought him to the meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. And parenthetically, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. As I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship. I even found an altar with an inscription to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather... He himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole world, and he marked out their appointed times in history and their boundaries of their lands. God did this so they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live, and move, and have our being. As some of your poets have said, we are exhausted. I'll stop there, at verse 22. So in answering the question of why we would want to study Islam and why take this approach, uh, we only need to look at uh, here in Acts 17, for instance. Uh, in this chapter, we have reported for us an example of an interaction between a uh, believer, Paul, and unbelievers, this, Are- this Areopagus Council, or in Athens. Now, of course, uh, the believer is none other than the Apostle Paul, right? So it's, it's, we, we always want to be careful uh, of comparing about what Paul's doing and what we're able to do. But it is the Apostle Paul. and his, But his interaction here in Acts 17 is helpful uh, for us as we consider our own methodology for apologetics. And really, that's uh, that's really what we're aiming to do. It's apologetics with this information. Uh, evangelism. So again, as we talked about, if you lived in this area for any length of time, uh, if you've lived or worked or gone to school, in this area, you probably interact with of You know the Arab the population here came here in the late, ni- almost, almost the 20th century, late 19th century, early 20th century. They began coming here for work. You know, from uh, Lebanon, primarily, primarily Lebanon, and settling in this area, uh, engaging in, in, you know, shopkeepers, but then really quickly being uh, put to work in, in Ford's uh, factories. So by the time, so looking at 2017, you know, some of these families in Dearborn have been here, you know, for four generations already. You know, so they've been here as long as any, some of us. So, you know, long-standing relationships. We find ourselves providentially placed in the area with the largest Arab Muslim population outside the Middle East, and if you ever had a chance to interact with any of the, the Muslims in this area, which I'm sure most of you have, um... No doubt you've seen some similarities uh, in what they believe in, with what you believe, but also some major differences, differences in how they view and interpret the world. So, you know, again, I want the class, uh, you know, first time, you know, for, but most of you know each other, you know, how, have, have any of you interacted and seen similarities? Any similarities with how, what Christians believe, with what uh, you uh, maybe a Muslim, belief, maybe similarity uh, that you picked
1: up on. Well, I grew up in a Muslim household, so the main similarities would be all uh, the prophets in the Old Testament. The only main difference would be um, after, the, like who Jesus was, and after, after his Right.
0: So uh, theological belief, there's definitely some some interaction, some. Uh, similarities. They, like you said, a lot of the prophets particularly moving, uh, going all the way back to Adam, but uh, uh, also, you know, particularly Abraham. So Abraham it becomes the big prophet that the, uh, that the Islamic worldview picks up on. Uh, but I think even at the very at basic level, yeah, Wes?
1: Monotheism.
0: I, I was just going to say at a very basic level monotheism, right? So uh, the big three uh, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. Uh, some, there's also Zoroastrian, which is a, a, an Iranian or Persian religion. But the, monotheism, so belief in one God. Uh, and these, uh, you know, so how they raise their families, you know, how if you ever uh, interacted with Arab families, you see there's a lot of similarities with how uh, Arab uh, Arab families are to maybe old world. So uh, if you ever, you know, thinking back to 40s and 50s, and how families were raised back then. Uh, you'll see a lot of similarities with how Muslims interact, that kind of thing. So just some some similarities, but of course major differences. So this is where our consideration of Acts 17 is helpful. As Paul interacted with the Athenians there uh, during what is known as the Areopagus Discourse, he understood a bit about his audience. So Paul, obviously from this speech we can tell that he, he knows something about the Athenian worldview. He quotes back to them some of their own philosophers. So verse 28, let me read that again. He says, for in him we live and move and have our beings, as some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. So he's actually quoting, uh, you know, Stoic philosophy and poetry back to the Athenians. So there's a sense that he... What, that he There is no sense that he's doing this in a pejorative or a negative fashion. He doesn't seem to be picking up on the poetry or the, the philosophy of the Athenians and mocking them with it. Rather, he's simply stating something that they, they took as true or generally agreeable, and then he, he himself interpreted that statement through a biblical worldview. So he he's taking something they said that is actually true, and then he... he Reinterprets that through a biblical worldview. So this, of course, then is, is this course is designed and aimed at assisting us in doing that first step. What is it that Muslim, Muslims believe, so that we can do the next step? What are what are some of the beliefs? What are the things that, uh, as people who are created in the image of God, if, if we're all created in the image of God, there is some truth to what they say. They may not know that truth. They may they may distort that truth to some level. But at some point, something they say is true because you know they're all created in the image of God. What? It, how can I pick up on that and then show them the either error or uh, a biblical worldview? Our methodology for doing so is designed so that if a Muslim were to sit here with us, they would generally, hopefully, agree with what we're saying about what they believe. Um, and this is something you know I feel pretty strongly about is that uh how how useful it is it to either set up a character caricature or a straw man of of uh, what a muslim believes or a muslim uh a muslim and say and then knock throw stones at that because how useful is that you know what we can um we we want to take what they believe at face value and then show them the the problem with the, the world view um You know, we don't want to start off by the conversation by saying things that are immediately going to shut down the conversation. Rather, like Paul in Acts 17, there's wisdom in adapting our tone and our approach to the audience we're seeking to gain a hearing with. To do so uh, means learning a bit about their values, their beliefs, in in an intellectually honest fashion. Uh, Another important area or aspect to consider in light of Paul's address to the area, Council, is his desire to impart this unknown knowledge to them in such a way that they can understand Paul says in verse 27, God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any of us. And then again in verse 30, In the past God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Although the people of Athens were renowned for their religious observance and superstition, the idea that God had first reached out to to us in order that we would respond and seek him, but that God had been patient in the past but now required a faith tied to repentance for sins, but have come as a novel idea to the Athenians. Paul sought to relay this vital gospel information, but to do so through a means that his audience would understand. <clears throat> Uh, and that's what we seek to do today. So often we take for granted that our audience understands the Christian terms we're using um, or understand the underlying theology beneath the ideas we convey. Paul here in Acts 17 doesn't speak in a pejorative fashion to his listeners. He doesn't insult them. He doesn't make statements in an offensive nature. Rather, he seeks to act in a respectable manner and use, he himself used culturally intelligible language in an attempt to communicate his message to the Athenians in a way that that, that culture could grasp while at the same time remaining faithful to his message. We're not saying we change our message. Our message is unchanging, but we understand, try to understand the culture we're reaching out to so that we can convey that message uh, in, a, in a particular way. <coughs> so putting it another way, here's a quote I have, and then we're going to jump right into the Islamic material. So the very fact that unbelievers do not at all times and in all places seek the darkness of their own hearts is owing not to a vestige of goodness in their own hearts, but completely to God's merciful disposition towards those who are his enemies and that are under his wrath. What this means for us apologetically is that when we take note of something that is, even if superficially, good, something that is virtuous, something that is honorable, that is in the other culture we immediately recognize that such things come from God and from Him alone. We may want to challenge the unbeliever on the very point which we superficially agree, that is, if in the case that the unbeliever is practicing these virtuous acts because of what God is doing, then it is also the case that the unbeliever cannot give proper account for the very thing he holds to be of value. So we may want to agree with him that they are indeed of value, at least to some extent, but then ask him, how can he make sense of such things, given his given his own unbelieving commitments? So again, we can we can recognize truth, uh, you know, in another culture, something that is you know virtuous, without sacrificing our position. But what we want to do then is to challenge that person on that on that commitment. So, into Islam. Any questions on that so far? Any, if there is a question or pushback, please, uh, you know, raise the question. Um, so this quote: the character of the religion adopted was molded, See, and that's it's a British writer, so hopefully you picked up on that. Molded but I, I wanted to include the quote: uh, it was molded by more widespread Near Eastern precedents and would appear historically possible within the narrow isolation of Arabia. So what's it talking about? So Islam uh, takes on. Of a very uh, multifaceted nature and if we look at what's going on in Arabia we can't explain why it takes that nature if we just look at what's happening strictly in the Arabian Peninsula so there seems to be more going on and that's what we're going to try to understand what all went into the shaping of this religion In our attempts to understand the religion of Islam we need to first look at the, the cultural milieu that existed in the Arabian Peninsula in the time prior to Muhammad, uh, the Arabian Peninsula was an important area for trade and politics. So I probably, I don't I probably should have included a map of the Arabian Peninsula. Uh, we're talking about the Middle East, you know, where Saudi Arabia, Yemen, all the Gulf countries, uh, basically Red Sea, and then East. <clears throat> uh, it was an important area for trade and politics. Was an important area for the interplay of great powers and religions on the on the region that impacted the shape Islam would eventually take. So this period is known uh, as the Jahilia to to Muslims. So this idea of Jahilia, uh, Jahilia is is more than merely an item of descriptive terminology. It's part of the religious message of Islam in which the time before Islam is contrasted in an unfavorable fashion with the Islamic period. Uh, al Jahaliyyah is is normally translated as ignorance. So normally this idea is, is, the the period of Jahiliyyah is this period of ignorance
1: uh,
0: for the Muslim. That's how they describe this term. It was the time when the Arabs were ignorant or unaware of, of God's message of Islam. The period of the years comes to an end with the beginning of Muhammad's prophetic mission in 610. So we're talking about all of history up to 610 is this period of jahlia, this period of darkness, this period of ignorance. The term itself appears in the Quran four times. Uh, interestingly enough, it never defines the term, the Quran. Uh, it basically, when it, it uses the term jahiliyyah, it, the, the Quran assumes prior knowledge. Uh, the jahiliyyah, from the perspective of, of developed Muslim theology and law, was a period of unrelenting barbarism, uh, only occasionally salvaged by the appearance of prophets like Abraham and the presence of devout monotheists. And if you were looking for a parallel, we would be thinking almost to the time of Judges. in in, in biblical history. This time of judges where people were doing whatever they thought was right. They didn't follow God. And this is kind of that Muslim, how Muslims think of this period before Muhammad. Briefly punctuated by uh, faithful people like Abraham. Muslim writers often use the contrast between Jahiliyyah and Islam to demonstrate the superiority of a Muslim belief or practice. So when they talk about uh, they, they contrast this this time period, the Jahaliya, with the present or whatever. They're doing it to highlight uh, a particular practice. So how the treatment of women during the Jahaliya. The treatment of, uh, I'll get into some specifics, uh, but one example is uh, you'll hear sometimes if you interact with women. Uh, women will talk about during the Jahaliya in the Arab tribes, it was popular for uh, I shouldn't say popular, but it was a common practice to take women, uh, babies, uh, female infants, uh, and newborns, and, and take them out to the desert and then let them die in the desert. And then so that this is so a Muslim woman will tell you the story. Prior to Muhammad, this was a common practice during the Bedou- with the Bedouin tribes. Why? Because just like almost every culture, uh, they valued men. Men were you know could, could provide value to the, the tribe to the clan. Whereas when Islam comes, Muhammad outlaws this practice. So contrasting the Jahiliya, this practice that was going on, look at the superiority of Islam because we outlawed this practice, that kind of thing. So that's kind of what, uh, when Muslims talk to it, refer to it, that's the kind of thing they're doing. Idolatry, treatment of women, slavery, uh, are popular topics of comparison with Jahaliya. Um The only exception, and we'll get into this, of the Jahiliya period, that is looked on favorably is Islamic, pre-Islamic poetry. Uh, it, it seems weird, but poetry in the Arab world is, is just, it's, it's the highest form of art in, in pre-Islam, uh, you know, in that early period. So, uh, and I'll get into why. Um, but the only, so the only part of the culture that was looked on in a positive light, uh, prior to Muhammad was, was, was poetry. In the modern period, then, the, the term Jahali is entered into the political lexicon. And so this gets to Rob's point a little bit. Uh, and so we'll give a little introduction into chapter eight, uh, week 8, is jihad and fundamentalism. A brief, really brief first. So 18th century, we're talking 1790, 1790s, 1780s. Uh, this person, Muhammad ibn Abdel Wahhab. So this is where Wahhabism if you ever heard that term that is practiced in Saudi Arabia, this is the founder, Muhammad ibn Abdel Wahab, had listed those elements of the Jahiliyyah which he believed to be anathema to true Islam. The list included the worship of the pious dead and pleading to the dead for their intercession, worship of the dead. And this is one of the things, if you watch the news, what he talks about there in the late 18th century, uh, Al-Qaeda and ISIS, when they go into Iraq, one of the first things they begin doing is destroying these uh, um, tombs because what ends up happening is under in the Shia worldview <coughs> they would go to these uh, Shia Saints and they'd pray to these Saints for intercession and so is you know the the descendants of this Wahhabist worldview they, they say this is this is uh, you know manifestation of this ignorance of the Jahali so we need to destroy these so one of the first things they do, they start destroying they go into these cities in Iraq and Syria and they start destroying these these tombs wholesale so we see the influence all the way till today uh, Muhammad ibn Abdel wahhab loosened the concept of Jahali away from a specific time period he began to use it as a, a polemic device uh, whereby the, the contemporary unorthodox practices might be condemned. And so this is an important concept in understanding why fundamentalist Islam does the things, they do, does the things it does, why it, why it takes the shape it does. Because now you can say the Jahali, this period of ignorance, isn't just confined to before Muhammad's time, it actually is it, it's right now when you practice these same things that were going on back then, idolatry, these kind of things. So his ideas are then picked up by the Egyptian activist Sayyid Qutb, uh, who further abstracted the concept away from the uh, historical reference. So for Qutb, Jahaliya became a reference to any society which failed to heed and to conform to the ver- his version of Islam. So uh, Qutb is he's this uh, Egyptian act. He you know becomes politically active, but initially he comes to America. Uh, in the early 20th century. And he, as a college student, you know, exchange forum kind of thing. He studies here in, the, in a university in the Midwest, you know, formative years. He sees things that really drive him crazy from his Islamic point of view, the values that he sees in the West. And he goes back to Egypt, and he's thinking about this. He begins writing. But he gets uh, involved with the Muslim Brotherhood. So he gets arrested by the Egyptian government, thrown into jail. And that's when he really starts to, to write and... Uh, pretty, uh, build on this worldview that that goes back to the 18th century. Um, hence, and, and his ideas are picked up by the, in, while he's in jail. His ideas are picked up by the Muslim Brotherhood, the followers of the Brotherhood. Those and in it's those when the Muslim Brotherhood picks it up. Uh, what ends up happening? And just as a side note, so in in Egypt in the 20th century, you know, uh, Nasser is rounding up these Muslim brotherhood, throwing all these people in jail. Like, sounds like good, like, get them off all the streets. What ends up happening is you radicalize all these these people, and they make contacts with each other, and then so when they're turned loose, all of a sudden now you have all these people who've built these networks and radicalized each other, and one of the people who becomes radicalized in these Egyptian jails with the Muslim Muslim brotherhood, Reading the stuff that Kutub is writing is Zawahiri, who becomes who's one of the founders of uh, uh, Al Qaeda with um, Bin Laden. So Zawahiri learns this stuff, reads all this stuff while he's in jail. This stuff about the Jahiliya, this period of ignorance, how it's actually present today in our culture. We gotta fight it, and it's not just the West; it's our own culture. It's Egypt that he, we, we're seeing because Egypt is adopting the West so they start terrorist attacks against Egypt uh, and so this idea of Jahiliyyah is important for Erdogan, uh, not just as a historical period because as a as a polemical device to actually uh, point fingers at people who so when we ask well, why do Muslims kill each other, why are they attacking their own you know because most of the uh, Islamic State, Al-Qaeda, most of their terrorist attacks are actually aimed they kill more of their own people than they do Westerners. Why is that the case? Well, it's because I can say, you know, Bill, he's not practicing the religion the right way, and if he doesn't repent, you know, he's actually not a true Muslim. He's actually living, you know, in ignorance, and he, you know, he's actually not a Muslim. So now I can actually take some kind of action against him and his family. So Islam is uh, is uh, returning to the. This material, Islam, is understood by Muslims um, as being a break with what comes before. So this is kind of the, the whole point of this jahiliya. Islam is a break from what comes before. The pre-Islamic period that we identified as jahiliya served as a foil for the purity and virtue of the Islamic faith. Anecdotal information is imported wholly or in part, correctly or incorrectly, as a way of supporting an Islamic practice belief. So we'll explore some of that. So what do I mean by that? Well, some of the practices they actually bring in, and they have no problem with them. Well, How are they able to do that? So um, the pilgrimage to Mecca that you may have be familiar with, you may have heard of This is so one of the five pillars of Islam you have to make this pilgrimage to Mecca. The thing they do when they're in Mecca, so they do this circumambulation again uh, around uh, this, the Kaaba, which is this, this large black cubicle building. Why do they do that? Why do they throw stones at it? All these practices were present before Islam. But somehow they're just brought right in into the religion. They're not denounced. They're not denounced with the rest of the stuff uh, of the pre Islamic period. But they're brought in and, and adopted and, and celebrated to this day. But how have they done that? Why do they do that? Uh, we'll explore why they're able to do that in a little bit. Any questions? Yeah.
1: What
0: is the criteria for denouncing these former practices? Yeah, great question. Uh, so I don't want to give away the answer because we're going to get into that. What ends up being, uh, what's the defining factor that allows uh, the, the early Muslims, that the early followers of Muhammad to begin to take these practices in and, and not be, and denounce others? And to the point of death. So if you continue to practice these, you can be put to death. But these other ones... It's okay. We're all going to practice, and we're all going to bring them in, and they're going to be part of our faith. It's a great question. Uh, I'm going to put you on hold. One yeah. More yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah.
1: You, you said this period of ignorance uh, was six
0: ten, and up to six ten. Yeah, it ends in um, six ten. A.D. Yes, sorry. Yeah. Right. yeah. Good question. I should have clarified. Yeah. So six ten A.D. So yep. Yeah. So I just wanted
1: to Right,
0: right, because they're not practicing it in the way that a, uh, the, the prescribed manner that somebody has outli- outlined and said, so, and that's a, that's one of the things we'll get into with, so this all flows together, the short answer is Yes. Uh, The long answer is that we, if you look at your your syllabus in week four, we understand leadership and authority after Muhammad. Why does it Why does it do that? Why Why does the religion allow itself? Why is it able? Why are you able to do such a thing uh, under in Islam, where somebody like uh, Bin Laden or Zawahiri can stand up and say, you know, we're going to fight. We're going to go ahead, and it's okay to kill these Muslims. Uh, and people will say, you know what, you're right. Uh, this, guy is, this guy's is. This guy got uh, the good theology. I'm going to follow him. And what he's saying is true. Even though we've been believing this other stuff for our entire lives. How does the religion allow for that? And then so we'll, we'll begin to touch on that in, by week four. And then by week eight, we'll flesh it out completely where we talk about jihad and fundamentalism. But the short answer is yes. It's basically just, it's a denouncement of you're not practicing most Islam the right way. And, and, you know, you even see that. That's why, so why do we, you know, you hear this uh, claim of why, why is there no separation of church and state? Why can't, uh, in, in the Arab world, why can't they rule a government, have a government that's not, because in every Arab country, friends, the 22 Arab nations, Islam is written into the Constitution. Even in nominally Christian, places like Lebanon, Palestine, Places that have a strong Christian populations, protections in place for Christians. Islam is still written into the the central codes of the government. Why? Is that you know? So, um, and then you know uh, how that uh, fleshes out to being able to say. Uh, so we're all supposed to be Muslims, but you know what? You're not practicing it the right way. Um, you know. You're not able to uh, follow a secular lifestyle. You have to follow it this way. Um, you know, why a uh, honor killings, these kind of things happen. Uh, so we'll explain a little bit what that means uh, with, with when we talk about the topic of women. And all of these things are manifestation of this idea that uh, you're not practicing. I'm the judge, and you're not practicing Islam the right way. And, and why why didn't, uh, Islam lends itself with that type of, of thinking. So I know that's probably opened up more, maybe more questions, but the short answer is yes. It's just denouncing of, of people not practicing the right uh, way. Bobby, yeah, you'll
1: get to it in a week eight. Yeah. Please. Well, well, my point is, and I don't want to push you to it, but what she's thinking, what I'm thinking, probably all of us are thinking. So the counter-argument to what you're saying about them not practicing it the correct way that's that's what the other side says too. Well 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 ISIS and, and al Qaeda, they're not they're not true Muslim either. Right. So you said in your mission statement, in your course objective, that we want to think about Islam as a as a Muslim does. Right. Well which one? Right. Who who when I get done with this course in eight weeks or eleven, which Muslim am I going to see Islam through the eyes of yeah. Oh, that's a, that.
0: Well, that's a great, that's actually a good question, right? So how uh, how can we define it then if everybody is able to, uh, if you're able to kind of shape it to what you want, how do we define it?
1: How do well, we in a lot of ways, it? all the religions do, the Christianity does that. Well, yeah. they're not right and you're not right. Right. So what's a real Christian? Well, I am. Right. He's not. <laughs> you're not. You're not doing this right, dude. I'm, I got it Right. <laughs>
0: So, so we'll I. Yeah, no, great question. And um, so I keep, keep pushing back, but hopefully, so the fundamentals of the faith are the fundamentals of the faith. So, you know, the belief in, you know, uh, God, the belief in his prophets, his books, the Quran, the angels, and uh, the, the judgment at the last day. These five fundamentals of faith, the, the pillars of Islam. You know, the, the hajj, the, uh, the, the pilgrimage, uh, the fasting, you know, all of these things everybody is going to agree on. So there are some fundamentals. There are some points that we can hang up and say these the problem ends up is in the faith and practice, what I describe in chapter, in week six and seven, tradition. Because there's a breakdown right after Muhammad. Muhammad dies. And so I, I, I was talking with someone, and uh, they were asking the question, do you think, uh, was was Muhammad trying to, do you think he was trying to fool people? Was he just like, you know, like a Joseph Smith? Like, was he, do you think he was just trying to fo- have these followers and get people to, and, and his, if you look at the historical data, it doesn't seem like that was what he was doing. <clears throat> because he doesn't set up like this whole, he doesn't live himself, he's not living uh, this fat life while everyone else, I mean, he's, he's living his life in the mosque, He's not doesn't set up any kind of follower, you know, any kind of system. Like he's basically just trusting that these revelations are coming. He's revealing them, and and that's he's living day to day. Like he's living with the seems to be living from what we see with the expectation that there is this, you know, uh, they're going to see the, the fruit of their faith. Yeah. You know, that is they'll be with God and, and it'll be all worked so out. Is he, is he
1: like their Jesus?
0: Uh, great question. So I will that's week two next week <laughs> well, <laughs> well, you know, why do they get
1: so mad when you show pictures yeah. of them
0: and stuff well, like they all they get yeah like, so great what, um, you're real upset well, you're, gonna, you're gonna get sick of hearing that you know put you on hold but um, yes and no he's not he's not he's not uh in the he's not in he's not right so on one hand they, already, they believe that Jesus was a prophet so they Jesus is, is part of their religion and, and to a degree but they don't. Uh, Muhammad does not occupy the, the same place in their religion that Jesus does to Christianity.
1: Muhammad was it, right? Like, well,
0: just... no. Muhammad is just a prophet. He's not. He's not like there's no divinity. There's no. He's not infallible. He's not uh, any anything that we ascribe to Jesus, other than being his his office as prophet. And Muhammad becomes the ideal Muslim. Why? The, we'll cover. There's these. The the Hadith or the and the Sunnah, the way of the Prophet, these ideas, how Muhammad lived his life becomes the standard for every Muslim. The problem ends up being, is there's different sources. You know, we have. Um, if you look at any of these sources, it'll be it's it's how you know it's it's ridiculous now looking at it in the 2017, but it's it's just how they did things in the in the Near East at that time. But it'll be it'll say something like. Um, a friend, so-and-so, Ken Brown, told me that uh, Larry Castle saw Rob um, go to the store, and when he did it, he drove a green truck. So we should all drive green trucks when we go to the store. <laughs> you know, it'll, it, that's the chain of transmission, this idea that so-and-so also got the story from how they're so-and-so. No, 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 that's how they recorded what the prophet did. The oh, Prophet Muhammad did. That's really sketchy. So it's it's and, but there's different competing stories. So it's like I'm going to trust this group it's of. Like the phone kind of, kind of. But you know, and we make fun of it now. It's kind of, but I mean, that's just how that's how history was written before there was history. Because I mean, remember, history as we study it in 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 a modern culture didn't exist a thousand years ago. You know, so you know, fifteen hundred years ago, these things we're looking at as a modern social sciences and and from our point of view but that's just not how they were recorded so I know this is probably getting hopefully not too confusing but.
1: so at one point did they believe in the God of the Bible or do they still believe in the God of the Bible would that would the God of the Bible represent their God
0: they believe uh, that there is one true God who revealed the Old Testament to uh, the Jews he revealed Himself to Moses, to Abraham, he revealed Himself to the Christians in the New Testament, but then it winds up and then reveals Himself lastly in, through Muhammad. But then the previous groups, the uh, Jews and the Christians, take that message and they, they uh, pervert it. So they, they, they misuse that His message; they twist the message. And so the Muslims believe that Muhammad is the final and, and authoritative prophet over all that believe. So in their point of view, they're going to say, yes, sir, we believe in the same God, the one true God, uh, from an Islamic perspective.
1: So is this belief based on any kind of interaction between these up-and-coming Muslims with Christianity? Yeah.
0: Wait till next week. And <laughs> 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 no, really, because we're going to, as we explore... Uh, We'll talk a little bit Hopefully we don't run out of time But we can talk a little bit about this week Um, But we're Why I I talked about some of these trade routes Uh, I was talking with uh, Dana About the Silk You heard of the Silk Road Uh, If you ever heard of that trade route So that runs right through Arabia And the Jews are very involved in the Silk Road And there's a Christian There's a Christian kingdom In in what's modern day Yemen And in uh, uh, Ethiopia as well So you have these two Christian kingdoms and then the Jews that are living, are traveling throughout the area, so they're coming in contact with these groups. Muhammad, in particular, uh, he 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 has a lot of interaction. So there's definitely uh, some interaction. But one of the things that Muslims will say, I'm giving away all my material on the first night. Uh, one of the things they'll say is that, and they they you wonder why they say it is Muhammad was illiterate. And it's like, well, why do we? Why would you want to say that? Well, one of the safeguards, one of the reasons it's important that Muhammad was illiterate is because then he can't have read the Bible. He couldn't have read the Torah and stole the ideas and put it into the thing. He can't. He, you know, he didn't steal these ideas. He can't read. So that's manipulation, or do you believe? Well, I'm just... I, uh, he definitely... Well, all the sources say he couldn't read. I mean, there's no reason to believe he could read. I mean, he's... You know, in that in that part of the world at that time, very few people could, could read. There were, I mean... Obviously, there were literate cultures, but uh, there's no reason to believe that he was uh, he was he, he was literate. Uh, but it's important from the Mo- Islamic pers- perspective to say that because then he didn't steal the
1: ideas. Yeah, like so, But
0: again, that's not something I would say <laughs> right. to a Muslim. So you're interacting with Muslims, well, you know, you know that that's not something I would start start off the conversation. Right.
1: Yeah, wasn't the Isaac the one that's supposed to be the chosen one uh, in their view? Uh, Ishmael, I mean, yeah,
0: Ishmael, Isaac. correct, right. yeah. And so they follow Abraham and Ishmael. Why? And so this uh, again, Ron's giving away. So now Ron's giving away. My, so <laughs> why? Why do? Why do certain practices taken from the Jahaliyyah period, this period of ignorance, and brought into modern Islam, or the you know the Islamic religion under Muhammad, is because? Abraham and Ishmael practice these things. So the things that they 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 brought into Islam are the things that they say Abraham and Ishmael practiced. So that becomes the key to understanding why why certain practices are brought in from this period of ignorance and others are, are kept out. Is is Ishmael Abraham and Ishmael. Correct, yeah. Yep, yeah, there. Can she uh, mention why they hate Israel and like they go to the land? Uh, at least well you, like, let me start the question by saying that's a question that's I spent a lot of time I wrote my master's thesis on a related topic to that so I spent a lot of time ask my wife I spend too much time <laughs> you look at I have almost as many top books in my library. On Israel and Palestine, as I do theology books, so I, I I've read I've tried to spend a lot of time through it, but probably not because it's a can of worms that we just don't can't cover in twelve weeks. Okay. I mean, you can teach a class on this Israel-Palestine issue. Um, we'll maybe get into the, the, the inklings of it when we understand when we look at the topic of what Muhammad's interactions with the Jews and what ha- happens with Muhammad, the Jews in in. Uh, Arabia, and why? So maybe a look at the the initial part of why, but we won't get into the whole. I won't open that kind of one. So if you want to know more, I can talk with you more, give you some resources. Uh, I think there was a question. Jim. Anyone else? So please, uh, this when, is what I want. When did Allah come yeah. So when the the name or the person, yeah. or I mean, where, where, where do
1: they Allah? equate with Allah to God? So Allah just means God.
0: Yeah, well, in Arabic, so uh, so this is going to open up another can of words. <laughs> so Arabic, uh, the Arabic word for God, so the word that Christians, if you go to a, a Christian church, a, a, a evangelical you know, church in in the Middle East or an Arabic speaking congregation and they're using the, the same Bible we have. The word for God is, is Allah. It's it's the, it's the definite article El and then Illa, the God. So on one hand they're just that's the word for God, just like you know, that's just the word that Arabic uses for the word God. But where so where does Muhammad come up with this idea? Um, so during this pre-Islamic period, there they they say there were certain groups who were devout monotheists. They didn't know the truth. They didn't know exactly what they were believing, but they were following God, and they were following this God, the God. They didn't know anything the truth about Him, but they, they knew who they knew Him as God, uh, and where they got that word from. I mean. I, I've read, so I, I know I want Christian, like a polemical way of how they would explain where it comes from or the Muslim understanding of God. But I think the easy answer is just that's the word for God in Arabic. I mean, I think where they form their idea about God, um, that's that's a deeper issue. Uh, you know, is it the interaction with the Jews and the Christians? Uh, most likely. Um... You know they have this uh, in Mecca they had this pilgrimage going on that predates Islam and in this area the, this Kaaba that I mentioned this black uh, cubicle building it used to be filled with idols and one of the and some of the things that were filled in there were even Christian icons because um, the Christianity that Islam or Muhammad is coming in inter- interacting with is uh, Byzantine. Orthodox Eastern Orthodox Christianity. So he's not interacting with what we would recognize today is not, is not like interacting with Baptists. He's interacting with, you know, Eastern Orthodox Church. So the icons, you know, so inside they, they're, they're finding out. So I, don't, I can't give you the quick answer on that one. But we'll hopefully we'll look at that when we understand the Quran. Um, week 3. Stick around for week 3. Frank, did you have the same... Oh, that was my okay, question. Yeah. I probably didn't satisfy it either one of you. Or, but we'll, we'll try to understand that topic a little bit more uh, once we understand. It. So I, I know this is probably... But um, definitely keep asking the questions. Because like I said, this is... Uh, the class is more for you guys. You know, I don't... Uh, I've already studied it out. You know, I remember we, we would... You know, at a college level, you, you, you get into the esoteric. So we, I remember sitting in these like classes and talking about the stupidest details about the Quran like just like four, four of us and a professor like why did they why does this dog why do they refer to this spots on the dog know, you know, there's this dog that's referred to in the Quran that has spots and Muhammad sees him and he's in a cave and it's like we spent like six weeks talking about this dog and you know so I've studied out
1: as much as I can
0: but for you guys uh, ask the questions it gives me a better idea where I can take the class, what I can focus in to help you guys understand more about religion. Um, that being said, time's up. I'm sorry that I'm going to keep saying wait for next week or wait for the final. Hopefully it'll keep you guys... You can't do that on week yeah. 11. <laughs> I know. All right, guys, thank you.